How's it going, everybody? Yavitz Djurjevic, your host here. And today I'm interviewing Jake Harvey. And we just had a great chat about his experience going from a self-described ideologue to an extent from the, in the political realm to actually working in politics for several years and getting to meet the folks on the other side of the aisle and realizing, hey, they're just regular human beings like all of us. And really the need for moderation in the political discussion in our society today, which I think is a really important topic because it's getting quite out of hand for run-of-the-mill folks who aren't extremists on either the left or the right. I wish I could have made this the title, but it was just too long, but he actually ended the podcast with saying, not everyone has to be your enemy, which I just can agree with on so many levels. So without further ado, enjoy the podcast. Jake, how's it going? Great, great. So I've got Jake Harvey with me here today. And Jake's a, a really interesting guy. He's worked in politics. He's worked in startups. And if you thought that took a lot of heart and strength, I think the most impressive characteristic of his is you're actually a, a Dallas Cowboys fan, right? I, I am a, a long-suffering Dallas Cowboy fan for about uh, <laughs> 20 years now. I got a lot of glory when I was a little kid and uh, nothing since then. Well, if, if it makes you feel better, I'm a Tennessee football fan, and I didn't even get the glory years of Tennessee football because I wasn't a Tennessee fan until I went to school there. So I've had about a decade or so of just pure misery. So I feel I feel your pain. So you know today's topic is really interesting because I think it's very relevant to just today's society and, and the world that we live in, and it really does revolve a lot around politics. But uh, give us a little Jake Harvey 101, a 10,000-foot view for the folks listening of you know who you are. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I grew up a really uh, here in Dallas, Texas. I grew up a really big news junkie. I was always, you know, reading Time magazine, the newspaper. This is just, you know, when the twenty-four hour uh, news news channels were really just coming into vogue, being really popular. You know, Fox News, CNNs, and I was just really captivated by that, watching the news all the time. And so that just kind of segued into, you know, getting really interested in politics because that's, you know, about more than half of the coverage you'd see on 24-hour news stations was politics. So, you know, I just got to know the major players, like House Majority Leader, you know, Vice President, uh, Senate members, you know, stuff. Usually a kid doesn't really uh, know know, uh, you know who they are. And, and I really, that, that really captivated me. And I, you know, I decided when I went to college, you know, I knew right away I wanted to major in political science. Uh, that wasn't hard for me to pick that uh, at all. So went to college uh, at Ole Miss, the University of Mississippi, not too far from uh, where you grew up. And uh, I started interning in uh, for political campaigns. And uh, my, my best friend's dad ran for Congress in Louisiana. And I, I moved in with his family for the summer and did everything you could think of from putting up campaign signs to knocking on doors to... Uh, you know, setting up for speeches, you know, getting your hands dirty and really experiencing the, the ins and outs of, of, of politics. And it, it's not glamorous, but you really learn uh, a lot fr from the inside of a campaign. So we did, did those internships uh, in college and in D.C. And, uh, you know, when I got out of college, uh, I, I knew I, I wanted to continue in politics. Uh, and I happened to have uh, my friend's dad was on the finance committee for the mayor of Dallas. So moved back to Dallas, uh, worked for the mayor of Dallas as his personal body man. That means you're, you're an assistant. You travel with him everywhere. 
And, and that just kind of launched me into the stratosphere of networking with other staffers, other elected officials, and, and kind of jumping from uh, job to job there for a good uh, five and a half year span. Hmm. Interesting. So you said something really interesting. You said you were captivated as a kid where most kids aren't capti- captivated by you know, the, the drama of the politics and the, and the news junkie, quote unquote. Why do you think you were captivated by that? You know, a, a lot of uh, international conflict, and I know you have some of a, a background growing up uh, where you're from, but but really that captivated me seeing, uh, you know, people in strife and, and other people trying to help them, like intervene in a positive manner. So the, the Gulf, first Gulf War was at the, the, the very beginning of my memory of anything I can think of. And I just remember uh, the first uh, invasion of Iraq, I was like, I couldn't believe it. I thought that was the most amazing, crazy thing I'd ever seen. And so that really, uh, you know, captivated me and, and, and got my interest. And, and, and uh, you know, to see the United States on the world stage uh, invading another country, I just couldn't believe it. Yeah. That is, that is an interesting thing to, to think about, though, how that can lead you into a life in politics, because it's something that captivates almost because you are so relatively young, almost like this innocent imagination. It's like this call to adventure, and then it manifests into something else, something more real. And, and uh, that's really fascinating. So. You go into politics, or sorry, you go into school, you get a uh, degree in political science, and then you go and work in politics. So how many years total did you spend in politics working? Uh, It was probably about nine years total, almost a decade there. So a lot of people would say, including yourself, you saw how the sausage was was made in politics during those nine years. So what happened? You know, what, what did you learn from that experience? Absolutely. You know, you see everything from, you know, fundraising to kind of coalition building to uh, endorse, how, how endorsements are made and like not straight up favors, but, you know, like kind of favoritism or if people have like a past business relationship or, you know, how that really comes to fruition uh, during the stride of a campaign. Uh, and it, it's not always the prettiest. It's pretty stressful. And, and, you know, one thing I did really learn is the best man doesn't always win, more, you know, more than mm. half the time. I, I probably went uh, 50-50 on the elections I worked on. And uh, I'd like to think most of the time I worked for the best candidate in the race, just even on paper, if you put them all down. And, and so you saw a lot of good people not win. And that was a little bit disheartening. But though, you know, you do get the good ones in office. And that that feels better than anything in the world. Seeing somebody that's there for the right reasons, that's intelligent that's smart, that's worked their butt off in their life to get elected to office. Yeah. So why do you think the best candidate doesn't always win? You know, sometimes it's it's name ID, sometimes it's money, sometimes it's network. You know, if it being I'll give you an example, the mayor of Dallas. So he's very locally in North Texas a well known name. He ran for mm-hmm. Senate, but that doesn't give him a statewide platform of people that knew his name. By uh by contrast, you know, you have somebody like who holds statewide office that's been mentioned on statewide, perhaps even national media that's gotten their name out there and, and people go to the polls and they say, oh yeah, I know that name. So it's an instant mm-hmm. draw. Also, I'd say network. You know, if you have a previous held position of an office, you have an immediate elected uh, a network of, of donors already in place to, uh, you know, segue into your next office. A lot of the people that sort of supported you before will probably likely support you again. So you have that instant uh, uh, lo- loyalty and, and money that comes with that. So what you're saying is, 
and I'm trying to paraphrase because I think that's so interesting because I think most people have no idea how much work actually goes into a political campaign and how much um, finagling there is in those campaigns. As someone who's been exposed to politics at a decent level, um, I think most average folks would be just completely shocked. Right. At- they, they see just, you know, the commercials maybe hear about an event in their local area when really for the staffers, this is a two and a half year grind every single day because, you know, you, they form a committee, fundraising committee, they, they raise money well before anything even goes out into the public. You know, you're filling mm-hmm. your war chest for battle there with these other candidates. And, and that's a huge process. You're going to events around the, around the state or country or your district. And so usually that's after 5 p.m. or on the weekends, you know, when you can meet with your with potential voters or constituents. So it, it is an enormous amount of time, energy, and resources that are even put into small campaigns that most people don't even see. Well, and, and every move has to be calculated as well, because for everything a campaign does, there's going to be a counter move by the opposing campaign. Right. If, if you seize on something, you say something, you can usually count on your candidate either kind of... Uh, taking a jab at you if they don't like it or trying to one up you in the sense that, you know, I've maybe I've served my community in an X uh, place. And then your, you know, your candidate is trying to trumpet themselves. Well, you know, I served for, you know, 10 years in the air force or, you know, so it, it's, it's a game of, you know, one upsmanship kind of there. And, and in everything you say, you know, is best being analyzed by the other, campaign, whether you have trackers on the trail that are videotaping your every move, coming to your own events, sneaking in, recording you, just waiting for that one slip up. And, you know, it might get you on uh, Fox News. It might get you on some major political website that they can uh, turn it against you. Interesting. So this is a side question. I didn't actually plan on asking this, but I'm really curious to see what your answer is. So I'll I'll use just a personal experience. Nothing is more terrifying to me as someone who's a financial advisor. I would, con- I would consider myself, and I've got the license to prove it, an expert in that specific field. But listening to, listening to presidential debates around the market makes my head want to explode because it's so obvious those people have no idea what they're talking about. They're just quite literally speaking of some like 10,000 foot talking point that somebody fed to them 10 minutes earlier. Right. We've come a, a society of, of sound bites. Uh, and, and that's what people, you know, they, they want to say, you know, the, the, what, you know, a, a snippet that gets played for 10 minutes later that they're hoping, uh, you know, that connects with people, but it's usually not a very sophisticated, smart, or the best answer ever. Yeah. And, and it, it just, it resonates with people somehow as well. So what I was going to ask is how often can you tell when you're watching debates, having spent time in that world where you're like, oh man, that's, that's such a, you know, prepped answer right there. Oh, a, a lot of the time, you know, you hear these canned answers because you'll see these candidates at multiple events. They have their kind of stump speech, but then you hear the same answers every time. And a lot of time they're bending, you know, the truth, they're putting their spin on it as we, you know, as we call it or, Everybody calls it, uh, you know, I saw a candidate uh, at a rally talking about how he had fought against the president uh, as uh, working for the attorney general uh, and he beat the president and everybody cheered and, and they because they assumed it was automatically Obama that he had defeated in Supreme Court. And what he just doesn't 
what he didn't put out there was actually George Bush was the wow. president at the time that he had uh, had the suit with the federal government. And, and so leaving that out by omission obviously sways the crowd a lot. And that's, you know, some good spin there if, if I've ever heard it. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, you could manipulate almost anything. And that's why, you know, I don't know if you've heard me talk about this on the podcast before, but I don't edit people because I don't want people to have to worry about their words being manipulated. Now we do cosmetic editing, making it sound better if there's a gap or something like that, but you can't, other people can edit you and you can be edited as well in that political realm, which is so terrifying. Right. Well, that's actually the newest thing. I don't know if you saw today, uh, the, the, uh, the FBI and, and candidates are warning people to be on the lookout for fake videos. You know, you have digital manipulation of people's faces and voices now. That, hmm. uh, they're, they're afraid of being used in the next uh, election cycle in 2020, that the first deep fake video will, will be released in the next campaign cycle, you know, and, and it's their prediction that somebody somewhere will make a fake video of their opposite, you know, opposition candidate saying some terrible thing, it'll be completely doctored for the first time. So I know that I believe it's the FBI or the CIA is currently working on detection methods to, uh, you know, be able to kind of filter out these videos if one should have, you know, get released uh, on a national level. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Pretty scary, you, you know, to be go headed that way where things are at things are so divisive right now and, and everything's such a hot button thing. You know, if somebody says one bad thing, it can cause a massive overreaction and tidal wave against them. And, 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 and you know, we, we saw with the, 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 uh, the MAGA hat kids in DC, it, you know, can go the wrong way very quickly and not be that way at all. And, and that could be very scary for, uh, you know, candidates running in a presidential election. Yeah. So what, what I think, I'm glad you segued into this direction because we're going to, <clears throat> excuse me, we're obviously going to spend time talking about this. So really the the gist of today's conversation and why I really wanted to have you on here is you went into politics, uh, self-described a very uh, idealistic Republican in a lot of ways. Um, and you left politics having worked with uh, folks who are on the opposing side of the aisle or folks who are on the same side of the aisle, a lot more understanding of the nuance of life and, and people's positions. Uh, right. Just, you know just in, just in general. Right. When I, you know, I, I went to a pretty conservative college, was a member of the Young Republicans there, was pretty lockstep with everything, you know, uh, uh, and, and the party. And, and once you get into the political space, it's a completely different world. If you're working on a campaign, you know, you're probably seeing the other candidates out there a lot. You, mm -hmm. you know, you get to meet their staffers on the campaign trail. You know, if you're working in a staffer job in, in the Capitol, you're probably interacting with legislative uh, aides that are on the other side of the aisle. And, and, you know, you just end up kind of becoming friends with these people, even though they're on the other side. You know, you say hi to them in the hall every day. You say hi to other reps in, in the Capitol that are elected officials that have been there for, you know, 15 years or more sometimes. And, 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 and you know, once you get to know somebody, it's really hard to vilify them. It's really hard. It's really yep. easy to vilify people in the press that you don't know. They're just a you know, Democrat, evil or Republican, bad. And when you know somebody, it's so much harder to like say bad things to them. And, uh, you know, it really personalizes uh, a lot of things. And, you know, another thing when, you, when you're out on uh, the campaign trail or, or working in an office, you work, you hear from a lot of like, you know, z zealots on, on both ends. You hear from mm -hmm. the most conservative of the most conservative 
and the most liberal, the most liberal. And that kind of pushes you a little bit more towards the middle in terms of, of your views that, that the only way to get the government moving is, is making some compromises. And, and I'm a true believer in that the, the, the majority party, you know, should rule and, and implement the will of the people. But at some point, you know, you've got to you've got to keep it moving a little bit. You can't have complete gridlock forever. It, it's just it's it's not an effective form of governing. Yeah. Otherwise, you end up being like Belgium, which uh, is a whole nother story. But right. What, what's so what's really interesting about this topic? And uh, I've had a whole uh, diatribe a couple episodes ago about people being manipulated. But what you said about once you know somebody, it's really hard to vilify them. So newsflash, folks, everybody listening. Whenever you use the terms Nazis or fascists to describe right-wingers and you use the term uh, communists or libturds or whatever you want to call them to describe Democrats, you're being manipulated. You're doing the same thing where in World War II, instead of calling them Germans, we call them Krauts or Japs or whatever it may be. Once you take the humanity out of someone, you can make them whatever character you want them to be. Okay, So talk about that experience of meeting somebody who's on the other side of the island being like, whoa, this person just wants the best for their family the same way I do. Yeah. I, when I was uh, working on the campaign trail, uh, I, I, I met another uh, staffer for a, a Democrat uh, candidate. Wasn't even the same, uh, wasn't even work, uh, running for the same position as my candidate. We kept running into each other like every weekend. We'd been at some event and it didn't end until like 1030. These freaking events would go so late. And, and I was like dying. I just wanted to go grab a beer. And, and yeah. he's like, yeah, that sounds awesome. And, and, and we got off work and we just ended up in going grabbing a drink around the corner. Uh, we were over in uh, Fort Worth, Texas. And, and we just, you know, hit it off, had a great conversation and, and drank a few beers. I'm like, this is a good guy. Like, we don't agree on, you know, a, a lot of our political uh, ideology, but he's not a bad person. He, he's, you know, he, he came from a great family and, and, you know, uh, had a very similar college experience to me, but just happened to be a Democrat. And, and you know, uh, that doesn't make him a you know bad person. And we really and so meeting with him really, you know, opened my eyes to, you know, you, know, you don't these people don't have to be your enemy. They, they can be your friends. You just may not agree, you know, when it comes to voting time on the floor. Yeah. Well, have you ever read Orrin Hatch's uh, eulogy? for uh ted kennedy i have not after this recording google it and look it up it's beautiful i mean it's it's you read it and i could feel the emotion in the words as i was reading it but that's kind of my point these politicians for example ted kennedy and orrin hatch as liberal as you can possibly get and as conservative as you can possibly get they're like best friends and and we forget that it's, it's like we completely ignore all these giant warning signs saying, hey, the the direction we're moving in right now of this extreme polarization and these purity tests within these parties is not sustainable. No, it's not. And you've seen that backlash the other way now. So when I entered politics, you know, the Tea Party was on the meteoric rise and they, mm -hmm. they just had these insane purity tests where if you've ever done one thing that wasn't lockstep with the most conservative ideology, you were you were out the door. And I think the Democrats are actually doing that now. Uh, that's kind of uh, gone, you know, faded a little bit in the Republican Party. But you're seeing uh, uh, candidates on the Dem side 
that aren't being, you know, if they're not socialists, they're not, they're not liberal enough. And, and it's really dangerous because you lose a lot of really good candidates that may be donated to somebody in the other party at once. They may have been a member of the opposing party at once, but that doesn't mean they're not the best candidate or the most intelligent candidate to be elected right now. So it really holds, yeah. you know, no bearing on their current uh, status in life, maybe what they did something 10 or 20 years ago, you know? And, and so there, it's, it's really just uh, a dangerous game. You don't want to go down for either party. So give me an example of a purity test that you saw during your experience. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say when I was working for the mayor of Dallas, uh, the mayor had, it's, the mayor is a nonpartisan uh, position in Dallas. Uh, okay. You're not a Republican or a Democrat. You may have your own leanings and people know kind of what you are, but you are do not have an R or a D by your name and you're supposed to represent all people. So uh, my, my boss, uh, when he ran for Senate, he it was brought up that he had attended a, been given an award by a gay organization in Dallas. And that was kind of weaponized against him. The picture was found, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure like everything these days, it exists online. And it was put in emails and sent to press that uh, my candidate was, you know, glorifying the, the homosexual lifestyle and therefore was not a good candidate for U.S. Senate. Wow. Uh, and, and yeah, it was terrible. And, and his rebuttal to that, in which I, you know, had echoed for him when I met with constituents or voters was, you know, this man was a representative of all people in Dallas, not just one particular, you know, uh, sub uh, population of people. He, he represented everybody. And, every, you know, every community has their own concerns, their own, you know, wants and needs. And meeting with somebody uh, and accepting an award by them doesn't mean you're completely embracing that lifestyle, but you're, you know, it, it's the, the right and cordial thing to do is to engage all people as an elected official. You would think that would be something that would, would be an asset to him, that he can get along with the entire gamut of, of constituents as, as someone who actually fights for the people that he represents. And instead it was turned into something negative. Right. Unfortunately, you know, in, in most states, uh, you have the closed primary. So that means the extremes of both bases elect your officials. So, you know, uh, what an average person may think is an asset is not always a positive. It, it, it may be, you know, they, they see it as a negative. Oh, well, he met with, uh, you know, a, a gay organization, accepted an award. Well, that's, that's bad. That's, you know, he's embracing that lifestyle. He is not, you know, holding up the purest of conservative Christian standards. Yeah. And so when you have people from the fringes that are electing your candidates, that happens more than not. And also, you know, that comes with the purity tests as well. Now, do you think having been around, obviously you've been around the extremes of the Republican Party, you know, we can, if anybody listening once was on the other side and was on the extremes of the Democrat Party and like to get interviewed, you're more than welcome to. Um, but just speaking on the extremes of the Republican Party in those primaries where the most far right of the right are the ones electing folks, what are you, what shocked you when you first encountered that as in, from a professional realm in, poli uh, in politics? What shocked me about the most conservative people or? Yeah, like just the most extreme fringes of, of that the party. They would not absolutely, they would not believe you. You could look them straight in the eye and tell them something and they would not believe you. I, I had one gentleman, this is, is pretty funny. He came up and asked me whether my boss 
was ever part of the Illuminati. And I, I started huh. laughing because I thought he was making a joke and he did not laugh and he was being quite serious. And, and some of these people are really quite isolated in their, in their beliefs. Maybe they don't have a lot of friends or they're, you know, they're older or they've fallen down a hole in the, in the interwebs that they are really in kind of their own planet uh, uh, in terms of their views are so far off the path uh, and they've kind of created their own world uh, or belief system of how things should be uh, and that everybody should be, uh, you know, following their uh, belief system. That's interesting. So how much do you think social media has to do with that? Like the fact that we're getting most of our news from social media and that we're creating these echo chambers. What, what, what have you seen with that? It's reinforcing the divisiveness in parties. Uh, you know, you only are friends with or listen to people that you already agree with. So it's, all, it's, you know, it's confirmation bias. You're just getting my views over and over again, uh, pounded in your head that I'm right. Everybody else is wrong. Uh, or stories that, uh, you know, clickbaity sites that have, uh, you know, headlines that are just kind of puffed up and inflammatory that, you know, so-and-so smashes, the owns the libs, smashes the libs, or the Democrats, you know, resist, the president got owned on this or that. And, and, and that's what you get, you know, shoved into your Twitter feed, into your Facebook feed all the time. And it really creates... Uh, kind of a bad mindset for people that uh, always kind of an angry, uh, hostile mindset to anything but their own. And I, I like to, you know, I like to quote F. Scott Fitzgerald is the test of a first rate intelligence is the ability to hold up two opposing ideas at the same time and still retain the ability to function. And I really think we've lost that due to social media, where, where people just get short circuited kind of on either side. When you, when you no longer just listen and hear people out, uh, it's it's really a jump to conclusions on everything. Yeah, it is. And the other thing that I feel we've lost, which actually fits well with that uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald quote, whatever happened to being able to, maybe you're conservative leaning or maybe you're liberal leaning, whatever, whichever, but then you also agree with certain points of the opposing side. So I don't know, maybe you're pro-Second Amendment, but you're anti-death penalty, as an example. I feel like that's not even possible in today's environment. Right. Well, you know, what we used to have big, big tent parties, uh, and that means, you know, room for a lot of ideas within the party. And, and those purity tests or just general hostility is if you don't agree with me, you should not be in this party. And, and that's a dangerous place to go. You know, uh, you're, you're really going to put your party at odds with the majority of people. And I think a lot of people felt, feel that way right now that, like, I don't agree with the Republicans or the Democrats because they're so uh, a lot of people are like, if, if you don't, you know, believe X, Y and Z, get out of here. Yeah, there was a, a study that um, basically looked at 10 factors in 1992, political factors. And if you could identify two um, belief systems in an individual out of the 10 with either Republican or Democrat, you could only identify maybe two or three more. So at most you are at five out of 10. And they redid that study not too long ago. And now it's, if you can identify one, you could identify the next nine almost perfectly every single time. So it's, it's almost as if people with social media, we've gotten too tired to think. So we're just going to say, ah, whatever it fits into this mold. So we're going to do it. So let's move forward 
when we look into the future. So you're not in politics anymore, correct? No, no, no. I, I've, you know, I've segued out. Uh, I worked at my friend's startup for a few years, which was a wonderful experience to, you know, work in the private sector, learn, you know, I, I think everybody should get a dose of, of, you know, the private sector and never be a lifetime, uh, you know, uh, aid or, or a political worker. It's just not healthy to not see, you know, what it's like to earn a real paycheck uh, from a business, you know, that has, uh, you know, bills to pay, coworkers to get along with. Uh, it's really good to get out there in the real world. So I, I've really kept my ear close to the street. I still have a lot of friends in politics. Um, I still dabble in a few things in terms of, you know, maybe helping somebody get meet some potential donors. But I really, it's a it's a it's a hobby again instead of a a, a job that I'm forced to go to every event around town. Yeah, no, but that's actually a good question. So the career politicians, the career folks who are involved in politics, how do you think it does impact their worldview constantly being in that bubble? Because that's an echo chamber in itself. Right. I, I think the best politicians are ones that have made careers outside of politics. And, you know, they've done a lot. They have a lot of different experiences. Uh, they've ran a business and now they are here for the right reasons. They're not there to make their money in politics. They're not there to make a name in politics. They've already done that. They're here to, you know, vote their convictions and help their community. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's, I don't know, it's it's just an interesting mindset that to, to stay in that bubble. And that's not just that bubble. It's any bubble. It doesn't matter what, if you work on Wall Street from the, you know, the time you graduate from undergrad all the way until you retire at an investment bank, guess what? You're going to have a very echo chamber-like experience. You'll think the whole world is just like Wall Street. So it fits into anything. The other thing that I think people are struggling with um, from a media standpoint and where they get their information from. So I, I know I've mentioned this to you before, but I really enjoy listening to folks from both sides of the spectrum just because I like hearing opposing views and then thinking through it. But, you know, whether it's Ben Shapiro of Pod Save America or, you know, uh, Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, that's actually a really funny one, but that's obviously left-leaning. But I think a lot of people don't understand when they listen to those programs, they're not un- they're, they're not without bias. Like Ben Shapiro is trying to convince you very explicitly <laughs> that his side is right. And that's okay. He's He's open about that, but I think a lot of people don't think about that when they listen to, to these news sources, quote unquote. Oh, de- definitely. I think that's another uh, dangerous place that we've gotten. You know, on these 24-hour news channels, a lot of the stuff they have is opinion. You know, they might have a news program at, at 5.30, but everything they have the rest of the night is opinion-based. But people watch these and say, this is fact, and this is now my beliefs. Yeah. So I think the most important thing to do is, you know, when I'm looking for, I I try to avoid all cable news. I I try to read most of it online. I will go to multiple different sites. You know, I'll check Drudge. I'll check a report. I'll check CNN, Fox News, Mother Jones. I'll, you know, I'll try to get around and and view multiple sites and then kind of draw up my own conclusions based on my beliefs and, and the data that I've read. Did you see my Facebook post I made? Uh, not too long ago. I did not. I, I missed it. I, I made one where it was uh, about, um, oh my gosh, what was it? Trump's State of the Union being postponed. And there was, oh, yes. was one was from CNN and one was from Fox News. And it was a completely different headline. And I'm saying here, folks, understand where your information's coming from. They all have a bias. But yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's very scary from that standpoint. Um, so where do you, so let's start with the Republican Party. Obviously, since that's the party you have uh, more intimate knowledge with. But 
what's the future there and how can they appeal to millennials, millennial men, just people in general? Because right now they're, um, it's pretty extreme out there. Right. Right. Well, you know, luckily, uh, you know, you're having more and more millennials and, and generic generation Xers coming to power, uh, you know, as the baby boomers continue to lose influence over the next, you know, decade or two, you're going to see a lot more open-minded and young political party, which, which is a great thing, you know, uh, more libertarian leaning, you know, almost all millennials, I'd say under the age of, you know, 30, all believe that the gay marriage issue is a losing issue. You know, that's decided, it's been decided by the Supreme Court. It's, it's not the strangest thing anymore that that's settled and done and should not be brought up again. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a losing issue. Uh, another one is in a more open-minded about, you know, maybe legalization of marijuana, a lot more, you know, libertarian ideas is, you know, less laws in everybody's lives. Mm -hmm. And and I see that's, I think that's where the party's headed. Even, you know, uh, you know, if you, if you legalize marijuana and tax it, that is a conservative view right there is that we are lowering your income taxes or your property taxes because we are making up for it with revenue elsewhere. So I, I think, uh, you know, social issues like that are, are definitely are continuing to be uh, the forefront of the Republican Party. Well, and it's it's ironic because we talk about social media being so negative in, in several senses of the word. But then also, I would say social media is what's made the millennial and Gen Xers more tolerant and understanding and and compassionate in a lot of ways to folks that are different than them. Yeah, well, you can certainly get your message out a lot, lot faster than you used to be able to. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, you know, just us setting up this podcast, you know, getting your views out there. Almost any kid can do that now. Anybody can shoot a YouTube video. Anybody can make a Facebook post that could go viral or a tweet that goes viral. So the power to be heard is greater than it ever has before, uh, which is a good and a bad thing. But but uh, it definitely makes the exchange of ideas, if you're open to it, a lot easier. Exactly, exactly. Now let's switch over to the Democrats. What do you think they have to do to become um, more applicable to the to the millennial generation? You know, I would say that uh, you know, First Amendment must be protected at all costs. Uh, that's a very slippery slope. You know, that covers the press, even you know, unfortunately, hate speech as we have it out there. Uh, we need to let those people speak out and, you know, it'll be easier to identify them as, as bad as it is to hear. And we can, you know, shun, shun them publicly and, and, you know, uh, po and politically then, uh, that, that's a, it's a very, you know, important thing to protect free speech. And, uh, I think the Republican party should, excuse me, the Democrat party should embrace, you know, protecting free speech at all costs. And also the notion that all successful people are evil or somehow have done bad things to get where they are. You know, there is a large segment of people out there that want to work very hard, uh, want to make money, but they kind of have this in their ear the whole time that if you're successful or you somehow accumulate a lot of wealth, that is a bad thing, uh, which couldn't be, you know, further from the truth uh, if you've done it the right way. Uh, you know, you're, you're employing uh, you can employ, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of people, y you have the chance to make, uh, you know, many people's lives better and enriched by you making money, you know, perhaps you want to, you know, set up a foundation, be really involved in, uh, you know, different charity projects, those are all positive spins that can be put on accumulating money by working very hard. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you in a lot of 
a lot of the things that you're expressing. I think it's just important for all of us to always just stop and think. And before we express our opinion per se, think, where's my opinion coming from? Is it coming from a true place of knowledge and thought, or is it just a soundbite that I heard and my brain is wired to win fights? So I'm going with the yeah, but approach when somebody says something and I'm just going to counter it. Um, and, and getting to know the folks, getting to know folks who are different than you. Make yourself uncomfortable. So what? You're uncomfortable for a little bit and then you'll grow and then you won't be uncomfortable the next time you're in that situation. It's not rocket science. <coughs> so I know um, I know. I always like to ask this question when I end a podcast because we're running up on time, but okay. if you could go to 18-year-old Jake, all right, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, about to go into Ole Miss, um, and Tell him one thing, knowing all that you know just about life at this point and knowing all that you know about yourself, what is the one piece of advice you would give to yourself at 18 years old? Yeah, I, I would say hold strong to your convictions, but keep an open mind. Mm. Uh, you're going to go, There's, you're not that old. You're going to have a bunch of different experiences. Even the next five years, they're going to really change your mind uh, and expand it. So, you know, hold tight to the convictions, the ones your parents taught you the ones you maybe learned in church or your religious organization, and but keep an open mind to other people because at the end of the day, everybody wants you know the same thing. They want to be safe. They want to have uh, you know a great uh, enriching family life. They want their kids to succeed. And at the end of the day, we all want the same thing. And, and you just have to remind yourself that we're all you know American citizens. We all are working for the same cause of of you know having a great country. And we may have varying beliefs on how we get there, but we all want the same thing at the end of the day. And not everybody has to be your enemy out there. I love it. I wish I wish I could make uh, not everyone has to be your enemy the topic, the 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 name of the podcast. But I think that's a little too long. But I love that. That's great. Yeah, and, and we have seen a lot of of. I will point out a recent development that has been great in that direction is if you look at criminal justice reform, that was long, long overdue in this country, and that was a bipartisan effort by. Democrats and Republicans that were both recognizing that that was a such a bad overdue issue that needed to be addressed, that it went through, you know, pretty fast compared to some other items that just get bogged down for years. Uh, and I, I couldn't be happier about that. Well, great. And, you know, hopefully it's better for all of us if the two sides get to get along and find compromise and build friendships. I mean, I'm all for it. I want my representatives to like each other even if they disagree with each other. Uh, we, we don't need any duels like they had back in the day, uh, you know, on the Senate floor. I forget who, do you remember who it was that challenged somebody to a duel and they actually did it? Yeah, it was Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. If you, I, I haven't seen the play Hamilton yet, but I, I hope to soon. And, and obviously, uh, Aaron Burr, vice president, ended up shooting and killing the vice president of the United States. Uh, so, uh, that obviously, you know, you had that in the Charles Sumner Canyon incident and all. So this 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 uh, bad blood isn't always a new thing, but it, it's certainly yeah. more widespread now. Yeah, let's not let's not shoot each other, guys. Let's not do that. No duels. But Jake, I, I appreciate you coming on. This was a super fascinating conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm, I'm glad we got connected. And uh, is there anything else, any parting words you'd like to, to give to the folks listening? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'd recommend them to look up a uh, a video out there on YouTube called Adversaries to Allies. Uh, it's made by the Koch brothers, and 
The first video is uh, with Van Jones, who is an Obama staffer, and with a uh, another noted. I'm drawing blank of who it was at the time, uh, and and it's about it's a great video about we are not so different in in this you know in our world and what we want, uh, and you know the Koch brothers are pretty influential people, and and them heading down this path of kind of reconciliation, I believe is a very healthy thing for this country. I love it. I love it. Well, folks, um, as always, if you got any questions, concerns, constructive criticism, keyword constructive, don't just complain. Okay. Offer a solution. Millennial manhood, CIP at gmail.com. Again, that's millennial manhood, CIP at gmail.com. And, uh, we'll talk to you guys soon.